objective, constructive, creative, solid Vox, the voice of intellectual adventure, proudly presents the Derby Report. Ladies and gentlemen, we now cross to Sydney, Australia to get the solid Vox with Michael Derby. Over to you, sir. Greetings to Prodos and all our Solid Box listeners, and the Derby Report has an exciting guest today, and uh, Dr. Don Brash was the Governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand for 14 years. In the 2002 election in New Zealand, he gave up that career and came into New Zealand politics at a time when uh, then Nationals leader Bill English won 21 seats with 20.93% of the vote. Only uh, three years later, uh, Dr. Brash, leading the Nationals, almost doubled the vote for the National Party and took the National seats from 21 to 48, a spectacular improvement in the Parliament of New Zealand, and I'm very pleased to interview today Dr. Don Brash. Good morning, sir. And how are things in New Zealand? Very well indeed. Brilliant sunshine this morning for a mid-winter day. It's not bad at all. It's a bit cool outside, but uh, otherwise very pleasant indeed. Now, cool, of course, is a, is a term that can have political connotations, but uh, <laughs> the people of New Zealand seem to have been warming to the National Party. Yes, they do. You're quite right. We got only 21% of the vote back in the year 2002. We almost doubled that to 39% of the vote last year, and uh, that was the best outcome for the National Party since the 1990 election. Not quite enough to win, but very close. Now, I'd like to start with a burning question about interest rates, then give Solid Vox listeners a chance to learn a bit about your background, then we can discuss some specific political issues, and if time permits, let's talk about uh, your prospects in the next election. Now, on the matter of interest rates, there oh, seems to be I'll, a I'm just, wide... gonna, I'm just going to interject because I just need to run an ad, if I may. By all means. Well, thank you. <laughs> It'll be a pleasant experience. Do you know that wonderful feeling you get when you walk into a room which is packed with books? Shelves of books that cover the walls and reach up to the ceiling, or even to the very stars themselves. It fills your soul with hope. It stops you in your tracks. It makes you gasp at the glory of human genius. You feel, thr you feel thrilled to be alive, proud and honoured to be in the company of human knowledge across the centuries, across the millennia. Is there anything more glorious than a massive, lovingly put together library? A library is like a church, or perhaps it's how a church should feel. You browse the shelves and read the titles, and you purr like a big, luxurious cat. Oh my God, I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to walk with these giants. Behold, the complete works of Shakespeare, and there's Neville Shute. I look, Ayn Rand's novel, The Fountainhead. I remember when I first read that masterpiece. Further on you browse, Benjamin Franklin's biography. <laughs> I must read that one, I must own that book. The novels of Mark Twain. You chuckle as you remember that time when Tom Sawyer attended his own funeral. Whoa, there's Ludwig von Mises' masterwork, Human Action. Man, that was heavy reading. Yay for free market economics. Ah, this section of the library has illustrated books about classic Greek sculptures. And here's more history. Ooh, ah, 
physics, Einstein, Richard Feynman, and there's Isaac Newton's Mathematica Principia. What a fine, fine library this is. It could be mine. Oh yes, it will be mine when I go online. Shop online for new and used books. Shop for rare books. Shop for great books. Build your library. Buy your books at iloveprodos.com. iloveprodos.com for the world's grandest collection of great books. Buy your books and build your library with the online megastore that shouts, We love capitalism. iloveprodos.com. And now we cross back to the Derby Report on the Solid Vox Network, the voice of intellectual adventure. Thank you, Protoss. Nothing beats knowledge, and the way that knowledge is, I love Protoss.com. Now, back to interest rates and Dr. Don Brash. Now, there seems to be a theory, Dr. Brash, that inflation can be ameliorated or prevented by putting up interest rates. And things have got to the stage in the United States and in Australia when people in business and investors cringe with fear that economic news might be good, lest governments then hammer them down into the ground by jacking interest rates up through their Federal Reserve or Reserve Banks. You were right at the coalface of this issue. Please tell us about it. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. I was. When I became Governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand back in 1988, the inflation rate in New Zealand was running at quite high levels and had, in fact, been at quite a high level for the best part of 20 years. And my task was to get inflation down below 2% within a three-year period. And I was uh, successful in doing that. Um, and yes, we used interest rates. Interest rates were kept at quite a high level until the New Zealand economy's growth rate, uh, or rather spending in the economy, retreated to the level which the economy could cope with without inflation. And uh, over the next 14 years, I basically increased and occasionally decreased interest rates to try to keep spending in sync with what the economy could produce without inflation. And I think we were pretty successful at doing that. Yes, but does your experience in New Zealand extrapolate to the situation in the United States and in Australia, or were there particular characteristics of the New Zealand economy which made it work for you? Uh, I think they were pretty much similar to that in the United States and Australia. In fact, I've done a big comparison with Ian McFarlane, your governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia there. And uh, although we began at somewhat different points, it's fair to say, I think, at the moment that both the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand operate with pretty similar kind of views of the world. But during your 14 years, uh, surely you were exercising discipline on the money supply. Yeah. And uh, wasn't that a significant uh, contributor towards you bringing down interest rates? Uh, yes, it was, although most central bankers now say that the link between a narrowly defined money supply and inflation is not sufficiently tight so that you can actually rely completely on money supply as a guide. Uh, even the European Central Bank, which is probably the most uh, money supply focused of all central banks around the world, also has an inflation target. So that they, well, they do watch money supply, they don't watch only money supply. Uh, but can we agree that disciplined, honest money 
is a critical part of a free enterprise society. Absolutely fundamental. No question about that at all. Well, let's hope that Robert Mugabe is listening to this <laughs> broadcast. <laughs> Indeed. Now, Dr. Brash, just about your uh, personal career. You uh, took a BA and an MA at Christchurch, which must be one of the most beautiful universities in the world. It is indeed. And you then went on to do your PhD at the Australian National University in Canberra. That's right. And uh, tell our listeners about your PhD and how it changed your life. Well, yes. In my master's degree at Canterbury, I did a study on foreign investment in New Zealand which led me to believe that foreign investment was bad for New Zealand and should be avoided at all costs. I went to Australia, convinced that I would uh, do a much more in-depth study of American corporates operating in Australia and prove conclusively that American companies were raping and purging the Australian economy. Uh, great was my surprise when, after three and a half years of study, I came to the conclusion I was not only slightly wrong, I was absolutely nuts and that American investment had been of huge benefit to Australia. And in general terms, unless domestic policies are particularly bad, American invest or foreign investment does benefit the recipient country. So it really moved me from being, uh, I won't say Marxist, but certainly left-wing, uh, during my student undergraduate days to a much more pro-market, free-market position by the time I left Canberra. Well, your road to Damascus experience serves as a useful example for all, all other parliamentarians. Some genuine academic study might do them some good. <laughs> now, you've, uh, you've said some very wise things uh, during your tenure as opposition leader, and one which uh, struck a responsive chord is uh, your recent statement that 290,000 Kiwis just got a tax cut in Australia. What is tax policy doing to New Zealanders presently and what would it do when you become Prime Minister? Yes, you're quite right. I've been highlighting the fact that whereas in Australia the Liberal Party government has been reducing taxes I think now four years in a row, the Labour government in New Zealand has not been reducing taxes despite the fact that the government's been running very large budget surpluses, large by the standards of our history large by international standards. And uh, they basically take the view that they can spend your money better than the people can, and they have no intention of giving tax cuts. The National Party has said, look, uh, this is totally inappropriate. People should have the first dibs on their own money, first right to spend their own money. Sure, there needs to be taxation. There needs to be some uh, effective government running the things that governments do best. But beyond that, there should be some uh, entitlement to uh, have taxpayers keep the money they earn themselves. And we've been pushing very hard for tax reductions. In the election last year, we had a tax package which said that 85% of all taxpayers would pay a tax rate of no more than 19%. Some would pay more than that, but 85% would pay 80, would pay 19% or less. And that was one of the factors which led us very close to victory. Of course, uh, Australians might uh, be a little frightened by the idea of a 19% uh, ceiling for uh, tax until, you, until they realise that, of course, in New Zealand there are no such things as state taxes. And that, uh, that figure you've mentioned is an all-up tax, isn't it? Uh, well, that's right. Though, of course, there's also a goods and services tax, GST, uh, applied to spending. 
which in New Zealand's case is 12.5%. Yes, we have a, a slightly lower rate of GST here. Uh, and do you feel that 12.5% is the right rate, or would you like to, to bring that down when you become Prime Minister? I guess my preference is to have taxes on spending rather than on income. So I would have a preference, if I can reduce taxes at all, to reduce taxes on income, which is a reflection of what people produce. New Zealand doesn't have a spending problem. If anything, we have a saving problem. So that uh, uh, reducing taxes on spending probably makes less sense than reducing taxes on income. But let me make one other point which is different between New Zealand and Australia. In New Zealand, there is no tax-free threshold. You pay tax on your first dollar of earned income. And that means that, in fact, most Australians pay less tax on their income than most New Zealanders do, up to about 180000 bucks a year. So you've made, you've made a good point that uh, people whose incomes are very tiny in New Zealand are, are still paying tax where they might escape tax entirely in this country. That's correct. So you intend to address that, I gather? Absolutely. Well, we, we, we plan to want, want to get tax rates down more generally. Um, the precise shape of those tax policies for the next election won't yet be decided, but as I say, last election, we certainly had a very aggressive package of tax reductions. Well, how do you uh, react to the proposition that uh, all taxation, by whichever means it is levied, tends to generate a demand for government expenditure greater than the net amount of tax collected? <laughs> I'm sure that's a very widespread tendency. Governments always think they can buy political support by dishing out uh, other people's tax money in, in preferred ways. And we saw that very aggressively in the election campaign last year. The Labour government said no tax cuts, but they'll take the surplus and dish it out in ways which bought them votes. And it was a very cynical approach to politics, but it uh, just worked. Now let's uh, talk, uh, Dr. Brash, about electricity. And you're uh, an Auckland resident, and yep. uh, you've been subjected to power cuts and blackouts. Uh, when are we going to see a significant change in the electricity arrangements for New Zealand, particularly with nuclear energy? Well, let me deal with nuclear energy first. Funnily enough, I don't think nuclear energy is likely to be a hot prospect in New Zealand for quite some time. And the reason I say that is not just that New Zealanders are a bit allergic to things nuclear, but because I'm told that the to be economic, a nuclear power plant needs to have quite substantial size, something like a couple of thousand megawatts. And adding a couple of thousand megawatts to the New Zealand system at any one point of time would be would be a very risky proposition. That would be a huge increment to our power supply. So you find most most uh, generators are saying nuclear does not make sense in the foreseeable future in New Zealand. I think that's probably right. We've got a lot of other options in New Zealand. Geothermal we've got. We've got wind power. Uh, New Zealand appears to be one of the few countries in the world where wind power can be fully economic without subsidies. And uh, so we're, we're better placed than many other countries to, uh, to provide generating capacity. The difficulty we've had in recent past is that the government has failed to reform what we call the Resource Management Act, which makes it very difficult indeed for power generators, as indeed many other people as well, to get approval to invest in new generating capacity. And while we've seen quite strong increase in demand for electricity in recent years, 
the increased supply of, of generating capacity has lagged that quite seriously. This might be a good time to ask uh, Prodos whether he's ready with another advertisement. Oh, definitely, yes. Rare, rare and to go. Thank you, Michael Darby. Okay, mister, let's go. Hong Kong, you ready? Wait up, Nasi. New York, start spreading the news. We're leaving today. Wait one minute, please. Here we have all the new things, all the new cities, new business. It's all hustle and bustle. Wonderful, wonderful Transylvania. Wonderful, wonderful. Uno momento, prego. Italy. Italia, it's a bellissimo, come mangiare, come dance, laughing, we must love you to be in Roma now, mamma mia. I say there, old chap, actually I'm in the mood for a bit of Buckingham Palace. Maybe it's because I'm a Londoner that I love London town. But seriously, ladies and gentlemen, whenever and wherever you're ready to travel, you can find the best darn deals on the planet at the iloveprodos.com International Travel Center. Ooh, some nice charms in the background. Just get online and visit iloveprodos.com. Have a browse. Have some fun. Select your destination and check our comparison search engine. We'll give you not only the lowest prices, but also the biggest range of alternative routes and airlines available across the globe. Whether you're traveling to Texas to buy a ranch, to Italy to pick up your Ferrari, or to Greece to say Yasu to the heart and soul of civilization. We can help you get there. Whether you're visiting your great aunt in Bulgaria or heading to Hollywood to take your chances, we can help you get there. You can even book hotels and hire cars at iloveprodos.com. Try it. In fact, try it even if you're not planning to travel just for fun, just to see what's possible, just to get a sense of what a big, wide, wonderful world we live in. Wow, I think I just put myself in the mood for Brazil. You love the online megastore that shouts, we love capitalism. I love Prodos. Com. And now, my dear fellow thinkers across the globe, let's zoom across the earth to hear more fresh thinking with the Derby Report on the Solid Vox Network, the voice of intellectual adventure. Well, thank you, Prodos, and thank you for telling all our Derby Report listeners through the Solid Vox Network that our travel plans can be assisted by iloveprodos.com. Yeah, they're great. And next time I travel to your beautiful country, Dr. Brash, I shall be booking through <laughs> iloveprodos.com. Good on Very you, Michael. Good. <laughs> now, Dr. Brash, you've been telling us uh, a little bit about uh, the energy problems of New Zealand, and uh, let's talk another about another infrastructure problem which faces every country of course but in New Zealand you have particular problems with New Zealand railways what is wrong and how will you fix it? Well the railways in New Zealand have been an ongoing challenge for successive governments for many decades and there is actually quite a serious debate going on about whether rail can ever be fully economic in New Zealand uh, I know the Treasury has expressed some misgivings about it um, on balance I think the Consensus is that rail can be economic for certain kinds of, of low-value, long-haul cargo, but it's not economic for most other forms of cargo, and, uh, and the government's just gradually having to accept that fact. 
Well, we have similar problems in this country, uh, although we have very different terrain. I did notice on a recent visit to Estonia that rail, rail travel has effectively been abolished there, which is, of course, a, a great pity for all of those of us who like rail. But in New Zealand, uh, especially in the South Island, you have the problem that your road system is... Uh, is far from ideal, and that's uh, partly a, a, a factor of the terrain. Uh, so uh, somewhere there's got to be a growth for the future in uh, the capacity to transport, and uh, most people would imagine that uh, rail can offer that if enough thought and care is put into it. Yes, I think in many parts of the country, though, uh, rail will be very hard to make economic. Let me just take an example. Between Hawke's Bay and Gisborne, on New Zealand's east coast of the North Island, there is a rail line. And it runs right through some very difficult terrain and right through some, some growing forest industry. And you'd have thought that forestry would be just the obvious thing to transport by rail. But I'm told by those close to the industry that even even logs are not economic to, to transport by, by rail in that area. Uh, why? Because to get the logs from the forest to the railhead requires, of course, a truck. And putting them then on the rail uh, is is expensive relative to the, to the uh, alternative of simply taking them further on by truck. So uh, yes, there will be places where rail does make sense in New Zealand, and I think the uh, National Party government will want to ensure that rail does con- uh, uh, continue and prosper in those areas. But I think we've also got to be realistic that there are a lot of other areas where what we really need is better roads. Yes, of course, that transshipment problem is, uh, is very difficult to surmount. You mentioned Gisborne. You were in Gisborne just a few days ago with uh, your East Coast MP, Anne Tolly. Indeed I was. And uh, you were conducting public meetings there. What, what was the mood of the East Coast? I think it's the mood of much of provincial New Zealand. In the election last year, the National Party basically won the provinces. And that's a combination of reasons for that. Uh, but basically... We haven't won the seat of East Coast, which is Antolly's seat around Gisborne, for quite some time, and she won it quite comfortably. And that was true, as I say, in most parts of provincial New Zealand. Uh, why is that? Well, it's partly a feeling that we are being overtaxed. It's partly also a feeling that the National Party is arguing very strongly indeed that all New Zealanders, regardless of race, should be treated equally. There's been a perception that... Uh, the Labour government has been pandering to a politically correct view of the world, uh, which says that Maori New Zealanders should have some kind of different, in some cases, superior rights to non-Maori New Zealanders. And that message went down, uh, and that, the National Party's response to that went down very well indeed in the provinces. This uh, serious question of indigenous rights, of course, uh, applies in so many countries around the world, even in Australia, although our indigenous population as a percentage is much lower than your own. Do you get a positive response from Maori leaders and the Maori communities uh, to the National Party approach to this problem? In some cases, yes, but I'd have to say in most cases, no. And I think that's because a lot of Maori New Zealanders think that what the National Party is saying is in some way anti-Maori. It's not anti-Maori at all. It's simply saying all New Zealanders, whether they be Maori, Pacific Islanders, Asian or of European descent, should have exactly the same rights before the law as all other New Zealanders do. In other words, no affirmative action, no quotas getting into university, uh, no... no uh, different entitlement to be 
on on local district health boards and so on. At the moment in New Zealand, there are separate Maori electorates at central government level. There are an increasing number of local governments which have separate Maori wards and dis district health boards, which is the basic uh, structure which runs our hospital system in New Zealand. They must have some uh, separate Maori representation on the district health boards. Um, and you find this kind of uh, special Maori representation requirement across many parts of the country. What we're saying is, look, elect, elect the best people to run the district health boards, irrespective of what race they are. Well, of course, Australians are accustomed to uh, New Zealanders of Maori descent being the most talented rugby union players in the world. Absolutely. I mentioned Zinzan Brook as one, <laughs> possibly one of the best rugby players of all time. But and of course, Maori New Zealanders have, have now uh, become very much intermarried with non-Maori New Zealanders, and frequently it's difficult to tell whether someone is Maori or not Maori. I mean, the managing director of one of the largest banks in Australia is technically Maori. Uh, most people don't think of him as Maori, but he is technically entitled to call himself Maori. Uh, will the National Party accept that New Zealanders of Maori origin do have certain cultural or historic disadvantages, especially in the uh, in the field of education, where some additional assistance, especially in the early years, is warranted and represents a proper investment of government uh, resources. What we say is, if you had, don't have adequate education, if you can't read properly, you can't write properly, whatever, the government should be there to help you, whatever your race. Well, I think you've made that point uh, strongly. Thank you very much. Let's move on to another another aspect uh, of uh, human life, which is health. Mm -hmm. And uh, New Zealand has uh, what seems to me a unique uh, feature of health care, the Plunkett line. And uh, this is apparently under threat from Labor. Would you tell us about the Plunkett line, uh, who originated the Plunkett line, and how effective is it, especially in uh, in giving good advice to mothers of small children? Well, Plunkett is an organization formed about 100 years ago by a guy in Dunedin, whose name I momentarily forgotten, uh, but a very, very successful person in, in encouraging an organization to be set up to help young mothers and their babies. And it did a tremendous job uh, in helping uh, 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 reduce infant mortality rate and, and so on. Now, uh, about a decade ago, the Plunkett organization which runs this uh, uh, service to young mothers and their babies, set up a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week uh, Plunkett line help uh, phone line to provide advice to, to mothers and their babies. And unfortunately, the National Party didn't have a fantastically strong record in this respect either in the late 90s and didn't offer complete funding of that line uh, Labor in opposition said, we will fund it, we will guarantee a 24-hour day service. And now, now they've been in office seven years, they're suddenly saying, well, whoops, no longer. It's a very small cost to keep that service functioning. I think it's about a million dollars a year. And it's, it provides a service to young mothers and their babies, which really is quite unsurpassed. Mothers generally think it's, it's uh, the best thing they've got provides specialized service specialized advice uh, in their in their uh, early motherhood period. 
So uh, the National Party has been working very strongly to assist Plunkett with their petition to get the government to continue that facility, and we very much hope the Labour government will change its mind on this. Now, Dr. Bash, one of uh, your responsibilities uh, as leader of the National Party is that you are spokesman for relations with non-government parties. Of course, you have more parties in, with parliamentary seats than we have in Australia. Uh, a member of one of those parties, not presently in Parliament, Dr. Muriel Newman, spoke highly of you on this program. How are your relations with, uh, with her party, which is ACT, and with other parties which might potentially join with you in a future coalition? Well, you're quite right. We have no fewer than eight um, different parties in Parliament at the moment. We have what I regard as the most unfortunate German proportional representation system adopted in New Zealand in 1996. And I didn't vote for it. I would certainly vote against it given half a chance. But we have got that system and we're stuck with it, at least in the meantime. Um, and it is important that we do learn to work constructively with other parties which we would almost certainly need to form a majority government. That's certainly been the case since the first MMP election back in 1996. So uh, one of my objectives is to ensure that we do develop positive relationships with other parties with whom we could, in principle, form a coalition government. And one of those parties has undoubtedly ACT. Uh, ACT is a small party to the, to the right of the National Party in conventional terms. Uh, they believe in a free market. They believe in in personal choice, uh, personal responsibility. Many of their views are very similar indeed to those of the National Party, and I have no doubt that we could work constructively with them. By, by pure chance, the leader of the ACT Party has been a personal friend of mine for more than a decade. Um, so that's, that's uh, a potential coalition partner for us. Another party to our left is a party called United Future. Now, they're actually in a relationship with, with the Labour government at this point, but they are quite a centrist party, and I don't doubt that we could work quite constructively with them as well. Well, the United Future, of course, has uh, presently three seats in the Parliament, and uh, ACT uh, New Zealand has two. Uh, but uh, I notice that the Green Party, uh, which uh, make, sends shudders down the spine of anyone who's a free market supporter in Australia, <laughs> uh, has six seats in the New Zealand Parliament, and their vote declined somewhat at the last election. Uh, is the Green Party as much a problem for New Zealand as the Greens are in Australia? Yes, I think the short answer is yes to that question. I don't know as much about the Greens in Australia as I do, of course, about the Greens in New Zealand. But we refer to the Greens here as being like watermelons, green on the outside and pink on the inside. And although they've tried in the last month or so to make it clear that they could, in principle, work with a National Party as well as with the Labour Party, I don't think most people regard that very seriously. They, they have a view of, of uh, the, private, the free market, which is quite a long way distant from the National Party's view. They, they are suspicious about international trade. They don't want to trade with people where labor costs are lower than, than in New Zealand. Uh, the basic understanding of modern economics is very limited indeed. So I think while there'll be occasions when we do vote together, we voted together, in fact, in the last week or so in Parliament about the microchipping of dogs, uh, or the four of their members did, two voted against us, um, the likelihood of a close relationship between the National Party and the Greens is pretty low. Now, you've highlighted uh, an interesting question, the microchipping of dogs, which just proves the point that you, as 
a parliamentary leader in New Zealand with no states, in fact, have a great, great deal more to worry about than our own Prime Minister, who's busy enough. But he doesn't have to concern himself with microchipping of dogs or with many other issues which are handled by the states. How difficult is it for you to get yourself across such a wide breadth of issues in a nation which only has one parliament and a unicameral parliament to boot? Well, yes, you're right. When I first became leader of the opposition in October 2003, uh, the Speaker of the House said being opposition leader is the worst job in the New Zealand Parliament because you're expected to be well-informed on everything the Prime Minister is well-informed on and you have only a small fraction of her resources to be well-informed with. So it is a challenge. Uh, having said that, I've got a very competent caucus. You mentioned earlier I've got 48 members of my caucus, uh, 23 of whom have come into Parliament for the first time in the election last year, and uh, very, very competent, very widely experienced, and I'm, I'm in that respect very lucky indeed. You've got a, a conference coming up, uh, Dr Brash, um, on... Uh 21st of July, and uh, that uh, National Party annual conference, I understand, is taking place at the Christchurch Convention Centre. That's correct. And I think that is the same building where, in 1988, I had the immense pleasure of doing a television program with a number of distinguished New Zealanders, including your predecessor, Sir Robert Muldoon. Now, how do you compare yourself with Sir Robert Muldoon? <laughs> Well, Sir Robert, of course, was Prime Minister of New Zealand for nine years, between 75 and 84. I have not yet been Prime Minister at all, so I don't want to be speaking in a disparaging way about him at all. His philosophy of government is rather different from my own. Uh, he saw government as a much more uh, interventionist, intrusive uh, instrument than I do. And I think most New Zealanders feel that the reforms of the mid-80s which took government out of a lot of New Zealand life, were basically for the good. And I certainly agree with that. So I don't want to return the New Zealand government to the kind of role which it had under Sir Robert, but I don't want to speak in a disparaging way about him, because as I say, he, he was successful as Prime Minister for nine years. Well, I, I think most people would be very pleased with your response. Uh, I have some observations about Sir Robert, which I'm, I'm happy to share with you and our listeners. I found that he was a man of immense personal magnetism, and that personal magnetism applied to ladies even more than to men. And uh, my late wife uh, was one of uh, dozens of ladies who each felt that he was giving each one of them his total personal attention. Yep. And I've never seen a man anywhere with such capacity to uh, persuade every one of, say, a hundred women in a room that each, that each one of them, that she was the only person whose views mattered. And I had the feeling that here was a, a gentleman who uh, managed to get a far larger percentage of the uh, female vote than the male vote through that immense skill. At the same time, I uh, felt that here was a man who had no understanding whatsoever of uh, how international trade operated or of the damage that uh, could be done to a nation through excessive government controls, especially in the form of tariffs. So uh, we, we, we're not, no one is expecting that you will be taking New Zealand back to the days of Sir, <laughs> Sir Robert Muldoon, but uh, and at the same time, uh, the gentleman put a huge effort into his nation and so we should, uh, we should respect many aspects of his uh, past leadership. Absolutely. But uh, at the, uh, the, uh, National Party Annual Conference, do you have 
some big things up your sleeve. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I am in the process of writing my leader's speech for that conference this very weekend. Uh, I think the point I'll be making is that the basic policies we went into the last election with, uh, reduced taxation, faster economic growth, uh, safer communities, uh, uh, welfare reform, more education, more, more choice for parents about which school their children go to, and a country where every person is treated equally under the law regardless of race, those will still be key policies for us as we go into the next election. We will additionally have important policies in two other major areas where I think we neglected, which I think we neglected somewhat to our cost in the last election. First of all is health. We didn't devote enough effort to explaining our policies on health, and we'll need to do that. And secondly, we let the let people get the impression that the National Party didn't care about the environment. I think that was a mistake. We can believe in growth and more growth without actually implying we want uh, dirty water and dirty air. Now, we haven't mentioned defence. Uh, we have only a few moments left. Of course, Australians and New Zealanders are again cooperating uh, in East Timor. And uh, it's always, Australian service personnel always look forward to uh, working alongside their uh, cousins from across the Tasman. Gentlemen, I just need to uh, hop in there, if I may, for one more advertisement. How about that? Please. Okay. <laughs> okay. Got something special to say? Then send it in a bouquet. Send it today. Fresh, lovely, delightful flowers. Flowers are the perfect way to say thank you for your support or I'm thinking about you, or I love you, Mum and Dad, or I'm so glad to be with you, darling. We've got flowers for every special occasion and for every special person in your life. You can select, purchase, and deliver your flowers online at iloveprotoss.com. Send flowers to your father-in-law in the USA for Independence Day. Send flowers to Canada for Christmas. Send flowers to celebrate when Don Brash becomes the next Prime Minister of New Zealand. You'll love shopping at the online megastore that loves to say, We love capitalism. I love Protoss.com. And now, like a bouquet of fresh, colourful gladioli, here comes some more fresh, colourful thinking as we cross back to the Derby Report on the Solid Vox Network, the voice of intellectual adventure. Thank you, Protoss, and it's a reminder to all our listeners everywhere in the world that wherever you live, you can do business through iloveprotoss.com. And I have the great privilege of interviewing Dr. Don Brash, leader of the opposition and leader of the National Party in New Zealand. And Dr. Brash is about to tell us what he's going to do about defence. I think it's fairly clear that successive governments in New Zealand have allowed the defence force in New Zealand to gradually unwind. We've been spending too little on defence. Uh, in the 90s, I think, because we all thought the, the fall of the Berlin Wall changed the environment totally. But of course, since September 11, the New Zealand hasn't really done much to reverse that trend. The National Party's view is that we have to, first of all, strengthen our relationship with Australia. And to do that, we have to demonstrate to the Australians that we are serious about carrying our weight in the defence area. I think many Australians are probably too polite to say so publicly, but feel that New Zealand has been swinging the lead in terms of defence spending in recent times, and I think the National Party is very committed to, to changing that. 
And Dr. Brash, um, many Australians remember the good old days when Australians and New Zealanders could travel freely from between each other's nations without the need for a passport. That's right. Is it really necessary that uh, peoples who are so close should have to have passports to visit each other? My understanding is that it was an Australian uh, change of heart which led to the introduction of passports. I think the concern in Australia was that people were getting access to Australia through New Zealand and Australia wanted to maintain some kind of control over that uh, process. So I think the question you need to ask is actually to the Australian government rather than the New Zealand government. I certainly would favour very free movement between our two countries, as indeed there already is. We are very close in many respects, and I think that's uh, entirely appropriate. Yes, there, there is a perception, especially of those people who visit the, uh, the Sydney suburb of Bondi, that uh, most of the population of New Zealand is uh, in Sydney and, uh, <laughs> and an unfair perception that uh, many of them are, in fact, receiving unemployment benefits. The, the truth, of course, is very different, that uh, some very entrepreneurial New Zealanders are contributing very significantly to the Australian economy, which in itself is a problem for you because uh, the New Zealand does a great job of educating very many people who then come and contribute to Australia and they seem to be lost to New Zealand forever. What can be done about that? Indeed, one of the major motivations for my, for my being in politics is the growing gap between average after-tax incomes in Australia and average after-tax incomes in New Zealand. In 1999, when Labor came to office, Australian average after-tax incomes are 20% above those in New Zealand. Last year, 33%. After the tax cuts, which took effect in Australia at the beginning of July, the gap is now 37%. Now, incomes aren't the only things that motivate people to move, but when the gap gets big enough, it prompts a lot of movement of people who are bright, energetic, hard-working, educated, and so on. And I think what New Zealand has to do is to work on policies which will reduce that gap over time, not as a way of being hostile to Australia, but, but, but to ensure that New Zealand doesn't ever become the kind of poor cousin which Australia... Uh, may feel some obligation to bail out. Well, I think that you've made that point very well, and uh, perhaps uh, under a future National Party government, we might see some reversal of that uh, brain drain out of New Zealand. But, Dr. Brash, uh, there are still some Australians who haven't been to New Zealand. Why, I cannot imagine, because <laughs> it, is, it is such a, uh, a beautiful and uh, exciting country. How about telling, us, uh, telling Australians and those around the world who will be listening from other countries some of the features of New Zealand which should not be missed? Well, you're certainly right. It's a, it's a small country about the same size as Great Britain, and despite that smallness, it has a tremendous diversity of, of scenery and indeed even of culture. Um, fjords, which are not unlike those in Norway, uh, mountains, which are not unlike those in Switzerland. This time of year in July, of course, the ski season is in full swing, and skiing is a, is a popular pastime in both the North Island and the South Island. And then, of course, we have a quite remarkable diversity of geothermal attractions, which are probably equal to nowhere else in the world. So scenically, it is an interesting country, and you're able to see a great diversity of scenery in a pretty small small area. Clearly, it doesn't have anything like the scale of Australia. Australia is probably 30 times the area of New Zealand. But in terms of diversity of scenery, we have a diversity which is quite substantial, given the small size of the country. 
Now, what about investment opportunities? Well, it's an economy which has got, uh, despite the Labor government, it's got lots of opportunities. Most surveys of economic freedom rank New Zealand fairly high up, declining in the last few years thanks to Labor's policies, but nevertheless still quite high by international standards. Uh, so it's a country where where uh, uh, the obstacles to doing business are relatively moderate. And I think uh, I would certainly encourage anyone who thinks of investing in this part of the world to look carefully at New Zealand. One specific area, Dr. Brash, is that uh, historically uh, geologists around the world have been a little reluctant to visit New Zealand because of the impression that security of tenure uh, for the mining industry hasn't yet found its way to New Zealand. <laughs> is, that, is that perception justified? And if so, uh, how will you be uh, attracting mining investment uh, for New Zealand as Prime Minister of your nation? I don't have enough information to make a comparative judgment between New Zealand and other countries on that particular issue. Uh, but my impression is that most people in the mining industry do feel they've got pretty good security of tenure. One of the difficulties we have is that our Department of Conservation has locked up a significant part of New Zealand's total land area, which means that quite significant parts of the country are not eligible or not available for exploration and, and mining. But I think if you get a license, uh, you have a reasonable degree of, of tenure, and you can't easily suddenly find yourself thrown off a, off a, off a lease. Well, that's uh, reassuring news for our listeners who want to invest in mining. And uh, Dr. Brash, uh, is there anything you'd like to add? Because we're coming to the end of our program and we'll, have a, we'll be going back to Prodos shortly in Victoria. And uh, uh, we can only wish you well for the future. Please tell us when the date of the next election is likely to be, how many extra seats you have to win to form government, and... Uh, what you would like New Zealanders in Australia to do to assist your step forward uh, to becoming Prime Minister of New Zealand. Well, thank you very much for that invitation. We don't know yet for sure when the next election will be, but it cannot be later than late 2008. In other words, it may be as much as uh, two and a bit years away. Uh, what, does we need, what do we need to do to win? We basically need to ensure that together with other smaller parties like ACT and United Future, we get enough uh, share of the total vote, the total party vote, to form a government. Now, that means I think we have to be aiming at something like 45 or 46% of the total vote. That would almost certainly guarantee us a chance to form a government. And because there are in Australia a lot of New Zealanders, some four or 500,000 New Zealanders uh, estimated to be in Australia, uh, their votes can certainly make a difference to that, that outcome. So if they can vote for the National Party, I'd be delighted. Well, we've been listening to Dr. Don Brash, leader of the opposition and leader of the National Party in New Zealand, and uh, very likely the next Prime Minister. And so for New Zealanders everywhere around the world, uh, here's a man uh, whose support uh, you really should consider uh, adding your own weight to. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for the Solid Vox Network and the Derby Report, thank you very much, Dr. Don Brash, and back to Prodos in Melbourne. Yes, thanks, uh, Michael Darby. Thank you, Dr. Don Brash. You have been listening to the Darby Report on the Solid Vox Network. Uh, that's solidvox.com or listen directly to the Darby Report at michaeldarby.solidvox.com. The voice of intellectual adventure.